Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Dublina Chakraborty. And I'm Sarah Dowdy. And we are making good right now on our promise or threat, depending on how you like this topic, to cover some more female aviators as part of this little series that we've had going. In recent weeks, we've talked about Bessie Coleman and Beryl Markham, both of whom were remarkable women and accomplished aviators in their own rights. But probably what surprised us most about these ladies and the others we researched for today is just how little we knew about them. Part of that has to do with just comparing them to Amelia Earhart and how much most of us do seem to know about her. In a short American Heritage article called Aviatrix, written by Richard Reinhardt, um, he attributed this fact, her popularity, her, the fact that she's still so well-known, um, to the fact that she had some good marketing people behind her. The man who later became her husband, publishing executive George Palmer Putnam, kept her in the public eye constantly. Then there's also the inescapable fact that she vanished at the height of her career while attempting to fly around the world, something that was obviously a pretty big news story. Reinhardt also sort of suggests that the mystery surrounding this disappearance compounded her lasting fame. Like the other stuff, the fact that she was in the public eye so much might have still been forgotten if it hadn't have been for the tragedy at the end. Which is still making headlines today. True. And it's not only that it catapulted her fame, it maybe also eclipsed the accomplishments of other female aviators. That's kind of just a theory that's out there and one that we've pondered on over the last few weeks as we've looked into these. Is it because she disappeared and there was so much news around her that we don't remember some of the others? As we've seen with Coleman and Markham, and as we'll see with the ladies on this list today, there were a lot of other women pilots who were also aviation pioneers and not necessarily always just compared to others of their gender. So we're going to start by talking about one of the first of those pioneers. Yeah, she was born Elise Raymond de Roche on August 22nd, 1886, and then changed her name to Raymond de la Roche and started out as a stage actress. And it was really during her time as an actress that she decided to change her name to that more glamorous version. She was a dark-haired beauty. She was quite stylish. And according to an article by Deborah Ann Pollock in Aviation History, she'd become a fashion icon in France by her early 20s. So she already had this very definite story before she became a pilot. So Della Roche wasn't quite as tomboyish as, say, previous podcast subject, Beryl Markham, but she did have an adventurous streak to her, and she liked to do a lot of different things. She claimed to be everything from a painter and a sculptor to a balloonist and a race car driver, but none of these things quite compared to the rush that she felt in 1908 when the Wright brothers were in France doing aerial demonstrations at a racetrack near Le Mans. De La Roche witnessed the demonstrations and even got a chance to go up in a plane with Wilbur Wright. And after that, she was determined to learn how to fly herself. And so she asked French aviator Charles Voisson, who some think was also her lover, to teach her. So Poisson agreed and began giving Delaroche lessons at the Chalon Airfield. His plane was a single-seater, though, so these lessons were not how you would imagine with the 
more experienced pilot sitting right there next to you in case anything went wrong. He would yell instructions at her while she was alone in the plane. And so at her first lesson, according to Pollock's article, Delaroche did a pretty poor job of following those instructions because Lausanne just wanted her to taxi around the airfield for a little bit, get the hang of things. But after just one round of doing that, Delaroche hit the gas, opened up the throttle, and actually lifted off about 15 feet into the air, first time flying all by herself. She took lessons for a few months after that, having her first crash along the way on January 4th, 1910, when her plane clipped some trees as she was coming in for a landing. But she managed to walk away with relatively minor injuries, and she just went right back to flying. This did not deter her at all. On March 8, 1910, she became the first woman in the world to earn a pilot's license when the Fédération Aéronautique Internationale granted her pilot's license number 36. The French press started calling her La Femme Oiseau, the bird woman, and she gave herself the title of Baroness. How appropriate. So after that, she barnstormed all over the world, something a lot of these pilots seem to do, doing demonstrations, participating in competitions in places like St. Petersburg, Russia, and Budapest, often in not-so-great conditions, too, like storms and unstable air currents and reduced visibility. But late in the summer of 1910, she was the only woman in a competition at Reims when she crashed and broke both legs and an arm. And these injuries grounded her for two whole years. In 1912, though, she picked herself right back up again. She started flying, but was soon seriously injured again, this time in a car crash. She and Voisson collided with another car while they were driving near Lyon. And Voisson died in that wreck. So even after all that had happened, Delaroche could not be deterred from flying. By late 1913, she entered the Coup de Femina flying competition for women, which offered a prize to the woman who flew the longest distance solo by the end of the year. Delaroche won the competition by flying a total of 200 miles in four hours, after which she was forced down finally by a gas line problem. So for the next four years, World War I grounded her for a little bit. Like some other women, she wanted to fly for the war effort, but she was turned down. But it didn't seem to diminish her passion or her abilities, because when the war ended in 1918, she did go back to flying right away. On June 7th, 1919, she set the women's altitude record by flying at 15,748 feet. Her next goal, though, was to become the first female test pilot. So on July 18th, 1919, she went to Le Coutois Airfield to co-pilot an experimental plane. The plane went into a spinning dive as it was landing, though, and both Delaroche and the pilot were killed. She's still remembered, though, for her firsts and her pioneering spirit. There's a statue honoring her at Paris's Le Bourget Airport, so you can still pay homage to her today, I guess. Well, De La Roche may have had a pretty significant first, being the first woman to earn a pilot's license, but this next aviator, Harriet Quimby, was close on her heels. Harriet Quimby was born in Michigan in May of 1875, and her family moved to California near San Francisco when she was only nine. Quimby's family was very poor, so when their farm failed and they moved to San Francisco proper, she had to work to help make ends meet. At the same time, though, her mom encouraged her to go to school and was really adamant that she pursue a career and become independent. 
So Quimby chose journalism, and she became a reporter for publications like the San Francisco Dramatic Review and the Cal Bulletin and Chronicle by 1901 and 1902, respectively. Then in 1903, she decided that she'd move to New York City and try to make herself a journalism career there as well, and ended up getting a good job at Leslie's Illustrated Weekly. But much like De La Roche, none of this could compare to the passion that aviation ignited in her. Quimby saw an air show on Long Island in the fall of 1910, and after that she was just determined to learn how to fly. So she started taking lessons the next spring. At first, Quimby disguised herself as a guy since it was controversial for women to fly at this time. It was controversial because fatal accidents were a very frequent occurrence, as we've already seen in De La Roche's story, and women were considered weaker, less capable of handling these dangerous situations than men, and sometimes even considered less courageous than men. Soon, the New York Times exposed her disguise, but Quimby turned this into an opportunity. She got Leslie's to sponsor her, and she started a series of articles on her aviation experiences, which became super popular. So I guess the New York Times wasn't expecting her to turn all journalist on them when they they exposed her. But on August 1st, 1911, Quimby did earn her pilot's license without ever having a single accident in the air, something that really does seem pretty remarkable when you start looking at a lot of these aviators put together. She was the first woman in the United States to earn a license and the second woman in the world after De La Roche. She started flying in air meets and in September became the first woman to make a night flight. She kept writing about her experiences the entire time, too. Issues that had her articles in them would completely sell out. In March of 1912, Quimby took on her greatest challenge yet, an attempt to become the first female to fly across the English Channel. She planned this attempt in secret, though, so that no one could jump ahead of her and try to make the attempt before she did. She headed to Europe in early March and met in France with Louis Blériot, an airplane designer and one of the few men to have successfully flown across the Channel. She bought a plane from him, but after finding out that it wouldn't be ready in time, she ended up borrowing his own 50-horsepower plane. She wanted to practice with it a bit before her initial attempt, but the weather didn't cooperate. Yeah, so she decided she was just going to go for it and had the plane shipped across the channel to England where she wanted to start her flight from. The weather didn't really clear up until Sunday, April 14th, and conditions were just perfect then, but she still didn't start her flight because she had promised her mother that she wouldn't ever fly on Sunday. So she had to wait a little bit longer. It wasn't until the following Tuesday before Quimby could take off from the Dover airfield. And according to Jacqueline McLean's book, Women with Wings, Quimby later wrote, quote, I was eager to get into my seat and be off. My heart was not in my mouth. I felt eager to realize the project on which I was determined. For the first time, I was to make a journey across the water. She took off April 16, 1912 at 5.30 a.m. and landed an hour and nine minutes later on a French beach. She totally surprised some French fishermen when she landed, but they were actually impressed by her accomplishment. They realized, you know, what had happened, that she was the first, and they gave her breakfast. They made breakfast for her there on the beach. might be the most charming of the different flights we've talked about or are going to talk about, maybe because it is only an hour and nine minutes and not some 
horrible, like 24 hour harrowing journey. But the breakfast really adds to it. It's a nice touch at the end. So with these French fishermen being so excited about her accomplishment and other people as well, I mean, London reporters were on top of this almost right away. And she, you know, her accomplishment was publicized there. She thought that people in the U.S. would be really excited about her accomplishment as well. But only a couple of days before Quimby's flight, the Titanic had sunk. According to McLean's book, this perhaps rightly so, totally eclipsed the significance of what Quimby had done. Still, her reputation as an aviator was established. She was billed as, quote, America's first lady of the air at the Boston Air Meet that summer. And it was at this air meet on July 1st, 1912, that Quimby set out to break an overwater speed record over Boston Harbor with English pilot William P. Willard co-piloting. During that flight, though, something, and to this day nobody knows what exactly happened, caused the plane's tail to pitch upward sharply and thus make the plane perpendicular to the water. Both the pilots ended up being thrown from the plane and both died. Quimby was only 37 years old. But she'd just received a permit from the U.S. Post Office at the time of her death, allowing her to fly the mail, which would have made her the first woman to fly mail planes. So in a way, she was kind of robbed of that achievement a little bit. Our next aviatrix, England's Amy Johnson, didn't appear to be a natural in the air right from the start, as some of the others on this list did. Johnson was born in the seaport of Hull in England in July of 1903, and her father was a well-off fish merchant. After studying economics at Sheffield University for a few years, Johnson took a typing course and moved to London in 1927, where she got a job as a secretary. And it was while she was living in London that she became interested in aviation, maybe because she rented a room near an airfield at Stag Lane. Most people would have that maybe make them not like planes because you're always hearing them, but not so with Amy. But since flying lessons were really pretty pricey, according to explorers and discoverers of the world, she volunteered as the secretary for the British Air League in order to get a little discount on her lessons. And as we alluded to, though, she wasn't exactly at the top of her class. It took her two times as long as the average student to get her license. But she finally did finish in July of 1929. However, she'd also spent a little of that time while she was trying to get her license learning a good bit about repairing engines, something I think we remarked, maybe I don't remember if it was on a podcast about Bessie Coleman or just between us, that that would have been a good skill to have during these times if you could examine your own plane and know it was okay. So Johnson became the first woman in Great Britain to qualify as a ground engineer, which got her some publicity. While she was getting this attention, she announced her intent to fly solo from England to Australia, which would make her the first woman to do so. Her goal was also to beat the time of the only man who had done this, who was Bert Hinkler. Hinkler did it in 1928 in just 15 days. But Johnson, before she could get started, it took a little while. She had to raise some money to buy a secondhand gypsy moth plane, which she dubbed Jason. But by the time that she took off for Australia on May 5th, 1930, she still only had about 75 hours of flying time under her belt. And she had never flown over the water. So pretty green. (laughs) Definitely green. And people were really surprised that she was trying this. I mean, some 
obviously scoffed at her, thought it was a crazy thing to do. Johnson herself later said, quote, the prospect did not frighten me because I was so appallingly ignorant that I never realized in the least what I had taken on. She was about to <laughs> about to find it out pretty soon, though. Her trip was really an ordeal almost from the start. And one thing was that she had to manually pump gas from a storage tank to the tank in the upper wing, required 50 gallons per hour, and each gallon took 40 strokes. And the process, you know, all of that, uh, all those gas fumes in the enclosed space made her feel nauseated. It sounds like a bad task to have to do on these long flights. By the fourth day, Johnson ran into her first major trouble, which was a sandstorm over the Iraqi desert that forced her to land. There, she had to cover the engine and fuel tanks with a canvas to try to keep as much sand out as she could. And then she kind of perched on the wing of the plane for three hours with a revolver in case she was attacked by wild animals. And she had to get back in her plane and get going again, because after that, she had to stop for repairs a couple more times. And by the sixth day, she finally reached Pakistan two days sooner than Bert Hinkler had. So it seemed like despite all these troubles, she was on pace. And when news of this got out, suddenly the whole world was paying attention to what she was doing. They thought she might really do this. She might really beat his time. From there, though, she ran into a series of mishaps, including running out of fuel over Jhansi, getting into monsoons between Calcutta and Rangoon, and getting lost between Bangkok and Singapore. She just kind of realized that she was going in circles. <laughs> she didn't know where she was, and she was just going in circles between the two for a while. An engine trouble was another problem that she had. She had ran into engine trouble at Surabaya. On May 24, 1930, she finally landed in the northern Australian town of Darwin. She was sunburnt, oil-stained, and very disappointed by this time. It had taken her 19 and a half days to reach there, four days longer than Hinkler. But she was really in for another surprise, because much like Beryl Markham, she thought she'd failed because she hadn't reached her exact goal she was setting out to accomplish, but... She was nevertheless considered a heroine. She had made it. She had done something that was really impressive, and crowds cheered her on. She got congratulatory telegrams from everyone from uh, the King and Queen of Great Britain to Charles Lindbergh. I mean, that would have been a pretty big deal for an aspiring aviator like her. She was even called the Queen of the Air, and there were songs written about her, including Amy, wonderful Amy. I wish I could have heard what that one sounded like. We'll have to look it up, maybe splice it into a podcast or something <laughs> like that. The London Daily Mail awarded her 10,000 pounds and an estimated million people turned out to greet her when she finally returned to London by ship on August 5th, 1930. After that, Johnson continued to pursue flight records, becoming the first pilot to fly from London to Moscow in under 24 hours. She also set two speed records for the trip from London to Cape Town, South Africa, and a record for flying from London to Tokyo. Along the way, she had a short-lived marriage to Scottish pilot Jim Mollison, whom we mentioned in the Beryl Markham podcast also. According to an article by Lisa Allardis in The New Statesman, they were known as flying sweethearts and were kind of the posh and becks of their time. I liked that comparison because I think <laughs> I probably everyone now can relate Celebrity to that. Celebrity couple. 
During World War II, Johnson needed cash and took a flying job for the Air Transport Auxiliary of the Royal Air Force. And on January 5, 1941, while delivering an aircraft from Scotland to London, her plane went down in the Thames and she was never seen again. There is a little bit of mystery and controversy surrounding her death, though, and what exactly happened. So she was supposedly still alive when she was in the water. And according to a New Statesman article, she called out to rescuers aboard the HMS Hasselmere, but then vanished. And over the years, according to an article by LaRue Scott in British Heritage, people have suspected that she may have staged her own death or maybe that she was even a spy on some sort of mission and needed to disappear. But according to an HMS Hasselmere report that came to light about a decade ago, there's actually a good chance that the real reason was more horrific than mysterious. She may have got caught in the propeller of the ship and was killed that way, but the information was kept from the public. Yeah, the public was grieving so much they didn't want to put it out there. The last woman on our list, Jacqueline Cochran, has so many aviation accomplishments to her name, it's nearly impossible to condense them to a list entry size. So we're going to focus on a couple of major ones and leave open the possibility that we may talk about her at some other time in the future if we ever get to talking about aviators again, if if you guys aren't sick of them by now already. (laughs) Cochran had kind of a sad childhood. She was born sometime in the early 1900s, but It's interesting, no one really knows the exact date of birth because she was either orphaned or abandoned by her birth parents. According to McLean's book, Women with Wings, some say that she picked the name Cochran for herself out of a phone book. So her foster family was very poor, and Cochran worked in a cotton mill at a young age. Eventually, though, she got the opportunity to train as a beautician, and by the time she was about 20 years old, she made her way to New York City and got a job at a very fancy salon, Antoine's of Saks Fifth Avenue. And she managed to impress Antoine enough that he sent her on to run his salon's sort of offshoot Miami location. And she finally started making pretty decent money. I think it's interesting, too, that we've had two beautician female aviators, such, I don't know, professions that you wouldn't necessarily link. Yeah, well, I guess you wouldn't suspect it of a secretary either or an actress. But Cochran, even though she was finally making money, as you said, and she was doing well for herself, maybe because of her past, maybe because she had been poor growing up, she wanted more than that. She got the idea to start her own cosmetics business, so taking this beautician career to the next level. And she wanted to learn to fly so that she could travel around the country to promote her company. So she started taking flying lessons at Roosevelt Flying School on Long Island in 1932, and she earned her license in just two and a half weeks. Like the other women we've discussed, she just fell in love with flying. I mean, that's just the common theme throughout this podcast, this inexplicable passion for getting in a plane and taking flight. She later said, quote, when I paid for my first lesson, a beauty operator ceased to exist and an aviator was born. But as we discussed in the Bessie Coleman episode, there weren't really a lot of opportunities in the 1930s for women who wanted to pursue a flying career. So for a career woman like her, she she needed something else. So in the meantime, she went ahead and launched Jacqueline Cochran Cosmetics in 1935, and the company did become successful. 
after that, she started putting her profits toward flying. So she kept a day job. And at first, she entered races and pursued records to uh, advance her flying career. In 1938, she entered the Bendix Cross Country Air Race for the third time and placed first in it. It had formerly been a male-dominated race. And around this time, too, Cochran managed to break the women's national speed record, the women's world speed record, the New York to Miami speed record, and an international speed record, all between the years of 1937 and 1940. So just one after another for her. McLean relates an interesting account of when Cochran set a women's national altitude record in 1939. She writes that Cochran flew a small, fabric-covered biplane up to 30,052 feet. And the air is so thin and cold up there that Cochran, quote, ruptured a sinus blood vessel, got frostbite, and almost froze to death. She also got really disoriented up there, so much so that she had to fly around a little lower at a lower altitude for about an hour after that until she could just focus enough to land the plane. During the war, like others, Cochran had to take a break from setting records for a little while, but she didn't take a break from flying completely. She actually helped to train women for the U.S. Air Force in a program called the Women's Air Force Service Pilots, WASP. And that's really quite the story in itself. So uh, we're going to sort of skim over the WASP section and maybe consider covering that at some later date. But after the war, a new set of record possibilities really opened up to aviators thanks to a new kind of plane. And that was, of course, the jet. The only problem, though, was that you had to be in the Air Force to fly a jet in the United States. And women weren't officially allowed to fly for the Air Force. The WASP program that Cochran had set up wasn't yet recognized as a part of the military. So Cochran found a way around this, though, as a lot of these folks have. She learned to fly on a Canadian-owned jet and started pursuing speed records that way. And then she started breaking into a new kind of territory. She got her friend, General Chuck Yeager, to teach her how to make a supersonic flight. So basically traveling at such a rate that she would exceed the speed of sound. It essentially involved climbing way high in her jet to about 45,000 feet and then heading straight down toward the ground. On May 18, 1953, she did this, and when she was diving towards the ground, she mentioned heading for the airport as her target and watching the reading on her Mach meter as she went. When she passed Mach 1, the speed of sound, she became the first woman to break the sound barrier, which is probably the accomplishment she's best known for. She continued to pursue records into her 50s and 60s, even though her health started failing toward the end. In 1962, she became the first woman to fly a jet across the Atlantic. Ultimately, according to Encyclopedia Britannica, she held more speed, distance, and altitude records than any other pilot, male or female, during her career. Cochran was also uh, honored for a lot of those achievements and those records she had set. She became president of the Fédération Aéronautique Internationale, and she became the first woman inducted into the Aviation Hall of Fame. And I think that all of us are probably relieved to know that she didn't die until 1980. So one of the these ladies lived to an older age and didn't fall out of a plane or something like that. It's it's just nice to see that one got to continue her pilot's career and see different eras of flight. Yeah, and we could get to end on a more positive note in addition to that. <laughs> well, in describing her career at one point, Cochran said, quote, adventure is a state of mind and spirit. It comes with faith. 
For with complete faith, there is no fear of what faces you in life or death. In truth, I ended up living a life of continuous adventure. And I think that's a really good note to end on, since I think that's probably what has fascinated us the most about these aviatrices from the beginning. And that's their adventurous spirits and also just their bravery and sheer determination to do what they wanted to do, despite the challenges and despite the dangers in a lot of cases. So we'll leave this topic behind for now, but there are plenty more that we can cover in the future. We got tons of suggestions from people, uh, Nancy Bird Walton, Anne Mara Lindbergh, Pauline Gower. Um, the list kind of goes on and maybe someday, probably not anytime soon since we spent <laughs> a, lot, a lot of time on aviators lately, but down the road we'll, I'm sure, cover these. Well, I was thinking we have quite a catalog now because we've, of course, done episodes on Charles Lindbergh already. Mm-hmm. We've done one on Antoine de Saint-Exupéry, the mm-hmm more famous as the writer of The Little Prince. And um, a long time ago, we did one on bungled flight attempts, which is a, oh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> was a pretty fun podcast. And I think there's an article on it, too. Yes. And we have a very old episode on Amelia Earhart, too, which who knows, we may have to update that someday, because I think that was from the fact or fiction days when the podcast was really short. So although we... Uh, we didn't exactly diss her, but we, we did say that, you know, you probably know a lot about her. So we didn't include her in any of these um, podcasts that, we, that we've that we done recently. But well, that's if, not to say that we won't. If you're a big Amelia yeah. Earhart fan, too, why not branch out? Yeah, exactly. Broaden your horizons. Find out about some other cool aviators, other cool ladies to, uh, to look up to if you're a aspiring pilot or just an adventurer or just someone who you know has goals and wants to wants to work toward them and send us any suggestions that you may have for future aviation related podcasts or other podcasts of any subject in the whole world we're at be grounded for a while we can be grounded (laughs) for a while and do different things and i think we will in fact and either way you can reach us at historypodcast at discovery.com we're also on facebook and we're on Twitter at Missed in History. And if you want to learn a little bit more about those guys who are just strapping some wings on, <laughs> plucking feathers and trying to fly that way, we do have that great article on terribly bungled flight attempts. You can search for it on our homepage at www.howstuffworks.com. Be sure to check out our new video podcast, Stuff from the Future. Join House to Fork staff as we explore the most promising and perplexing possibilities of tomorrow. The House to Fork's iPhone app has arrived. Download it today on iTunes. <laughs> <laughs>